It was in 1978 that a guy named James Burke wrote a book called Connections. In it, Burke told stories about how rarely it is that significant achievements or discoveries stand alone, that they don't spring forth from nothingness. Everything is entwined and dependent on previous events and discoveries, sometimes in quite unexpected ways. For example, we say Steve Jobs quote-unquote invented the iPhone, but who invented the capacitive touchscreen or cellular data transmission or lithium-ion batteries? Really, nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything depends on the something that came before. The real accomplishment is that spark of idea that pulls all the disparate threads together into a unique and new fabric. I thought of this concept when we were coming up with the idea of the show because that's the kind of story we'll be telling in this episode. How one pebble of an idea bounced down and made another one get going and then knocked loose a rock and then a boulder before turning into an avalanche of discovery. It is fundamentally a story of teamwork and how various individuals' inspiration and initiatives were combined into an accomplishment none of the participants could have pulled off on their own. It is, in fact, and as far as we can tell, literally the story of something that has never happened before. I'm Brian Brown of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and in the next few hours you'll hear from some members of our organization whose names may well be new to you. You'll hear how their ideas and efforts combined with those of more than a dozen other members in such a way to shed light on some of the most basic questions we've had about these animals we call wood apes. And, as is usual following discovery, how we've generated a score of additional questions we're striving to answer. In truth, you'll hear how the results of this team effort totally changed how we approach our work, and how we may have collected the first real behavioral and biological data of an animal many say can't possibly exist. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us. Brandon Lentz. Hey, Brian Brown. How are you? Fantastic. How are we have you? a pretty good show today. I think we have an, a historic show today. Yeah, this we is going to be a really cool. great story to tell. This is going to be cool. Why don't you uh, walk us through it? What are we What are we hearing today? We are going to learn all about Tag Seven. Mm. We believe that we could have possibly tagged a wood ape in the Wachita Mountains in the year 2015. That's cool. Yeah, I think that's a pretty historic story to tell. So first up, we're talking to uh, a guy named John Perry, who is a, a wildlife biologist who's a member of our organization. And then after that... After that, we are talking to Mark MacGyver McClurkin, who is a <laughs> member of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. And following that, we have a roundtable discussion, uh, a coffee shop talk between a lot of the guys who are actually on the ground uh, trying to find and track the tag. That's a really cool story. You get to hear all about guys in airplanes and all kinds of crazy things that we employed trying to determine the whereabouts of, of the animal we tagged. And then finally, you and I talk to uh, Alton and, and, and Daryl and hear about uh, the sorts of things we've determined and hypothesized about uh, following that grand adventure. Right. We talk about the possibilities of what the animal that was tagged might be, could not be. Right. We go over all of that. Yeah. So sit right back, make yourself comfortable. Uh, this is a good one. And uh, here we go. <laughs> Uh, 
On the line with me now is John Perry. Hi, John. Hey, Brian. Uh, you are a member of the NAWAC now, and uh, you are a biologist with uh, 20 years of experience. Why don't you give us a little idea of what your background is? Sure. Um, I graduated from the University of Maine at Orono in 1991 with a, with a BS in biology. Um, at the time, I was going to go pre-med, actually, um, but somehow I got into the environmental field. And I ended up working actually on the industry side doing biology. So I would work for the power company up here in Maine doing environmental impact studies related to hydro relicensing. And from there, I, I ended up in state government. I did a little stint in consulting business for a while, but I ended up in state government, which is where I am today. So what sorts of things have you done as a biologist? And specifically, uh, we're going to be talking about the radio tag technology today. So what did you, what were you doing with these radio tags uh, back in the time that you were you were utilizing them in the field? You know, I had quite a bit of experience conducting environmental impact studies associated with hydro relicensing. So we'd work around hydroelectric dams, and there'd be environmental impacts associated with them. The lakes go up and down because they're trying to generate electricity. What's that impact on the local fish, wildlife, and botanical resources? Sure. I've worked on various projects along those lines, and you came across a particular project that had the potential to impact a rare species of turtle up here in Maine. And um, so the, the, the lead biologist I was working with at the time, we were working with, with biologists with the state of Maine, and we developed a radio telemetry study. We would actually go out and capture these rare turtles and use a dental acrylic and glue these radio tags on, on the shells of the turtles. And we could release them and, and track them over a period of months and even in a year or so. Wow check their movements, see if the operations of the, of the hydro project were impacting their nesting. These turtles are really terrestrial, and you know, it's not like catching a turtle basking in a pond. These things would move for miles through the woods and the, you know, the thick undergrowth. There's no way you could go out and collect them without the use of this telemetry equipment. Yeah, with the tags, you're able then to see how far they would go in a certain period of time, the kinds of places they would go, that sort of thing. Exactly. They would lead us to more turtle populations. They would lead us to the breeding, the, the nesting sites. They would lead us to where they were hibernating over the winter um, in the deeper pools of the river, things that no one had done before to our knowledge. Uh, it, was, it was pretty fascinating work. That's cool. Um, we could literally walk right out you know, miles into the woods and bend over and pick these animals up once they were tagged. So the way this works is you have a, a, an antenna, a directional antenna, and you're listening to the, the chirping, the, the returns from the radio tag. Yeah, think of it like like a car radio. Um, each of these tags has its own frequency, like you're, you're dialing in a station on the radio, and, and the antenna picks up that frequency. So each animal that we tag had a different tag, had a different frequency. So think of dialing in a radio. You mm -hmm. dial in the frequency you wanted to on your receiver and, and, and go out and find that particular animal. I can imagine the, the turtle like, you guys found me again. How is this happening? <laughs> <laughs> Don't understand. They could not hide. <laughs> and how long the, the how long did this study go for? Yeah, the, so the study actually evolved into a graduate program with with, hmm. with a few different graduate students at the University of Maine. And you know, my part lasted a good two three years, I think, um, okay. back in the the nineteen nineties. But uh, the graduate work continued for a few more years after that. How big were these? These had to be if they were in the nineties. How big were the the transmitters themselves that you were putting on the turtles? The transmitters we were using were designed actually for, for fish, um, Atlantic oh. salmon actually, where they would basically stuff these tags down there and you know, into their stomachs and uh, 
you know, they track these salmon around. We just modified, we just used them for our work. Um, so they That's were, amazing. I don't know, they were probably the size of, you know, I don't know, an inch or so. They were, they were good size tags. The, the bulk of the tag is actually the battery. If you want a tag to last a long time, you need a big battery. Um, so the bigger the tag, the longer it generally will last. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, we couldn't go too big. I mean, we're talking about turtles here. How big was the turtle? Gen- oh, they were probably eight inch. Okay, so not real big. No, the, the species is wood turtle. So anyone familiar with wood turtles? Um, they're not real big. Okay. So it sounds like the tags you were using back then are quite a bit larger than the ones you were utilizing today. Yeah, I mean, you can get tags of all different shapes and sizes today. Um, it mm-hmm. really depends on the size of the, the animal you're, you're tracking. Obviously, you're not going to put a 200-gram uh, tag on a, on a little minnow species of fish. It'll <laughs> um, sink. So, you know, you have to, you see, this is, um, you know, the bigger the tag, you know, generally the longer life you have. But, right. you know, you've got that trade-off with the weight of the tag. Right. And so, so the tags that we, we started using for, for this study, um, you know, we wanted to be as discreet as possible. We didn't want the animal, you know, our, our target species to see them hanging in the woods. Right. Uh, which is why we went with the smaller tags. And that was really the, the first interesting aspect of what we tried to do, because typically a biologist is attaching the tag to the animal, whether it's whatever the animal it is, if it's a turtle or a fish or a bear um, you've, you've somehow subdued the animal so that you can put the tag on it yourself. But we were trying to do something that no one had ever done before, as far as we're familiar with, and that's get the animal to self tag, to attach the tag to itself. Right. And, um, so, you know, having been somewhat experienced with these tags, the way they work is they don't transmit a signal. Um, when, when you get them shipped to you from the factory, they have a magnet on them and they're mm-hmm. not transmitting until you remove the magnet. And so back around that time, I was doing that study, and I actually did a follow-up telemetry study on a different hydro project. We were tracking uh, fish in a river gorge system, actually. It was, so that was another application we used these tags for. Um, I started playing with the idea. It was about the time I was involved with the BFRO, and that's when I first met Alton and, and the Strains and, and Daryl and some others. And, sure. Um, but I got talking with, with Alton as a biologist, a biologist, and I think at the time he was toying with the idea of these, those rat tag traps or whatever he used to call them with the fairy chips, mm-hmm. the pheromone chip. And, I, and that's when I first sort of gave him the idea about using these tags. And if we could somehow rig the tag into a trap where we would have a receiver constantly searching for these transmitters while they had the battery on them, and of course we'd get, a, we'd get no signal. But if we started, started to suddenly receive a signal, we would know that the, the magnet and tag had separated and right. hopefully attached to an animal. And that's kind of the genesis of that idea. How did you become aware of the NAWAC, and, and how did you become involved in the work that we were doing? What, what brought you to us? So, as I said, you know, I first met uh, Elton Higgins back when I was in, we were in the BFRO together. And, mm-hmm. um, I really found out there were some legitimate scientists out there looking for this animal. Um, I was always intrigued by, you know, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, wood apes. Um, never had seen one before, but I've read the books. And it was, you know, as a biologist, I mean, sure, they could exist. There's no reason why they couldn't exist. So I was just always fascinated with the subject. And so over the years, I would just, you know, I, I would exchange emails and an occasional phone call with, with Alton and just say, hey, what's the latest in the world of Bigfoot research? And, mm-hmm. um, and that's how I just sort of stayed in touch with him. I uh, sort of lived vicariously through him, and he would feed, feed me tidbits over the years. I mean, this, this went on oh, a decade, decade and a half anyway, sure. I think. 
And um, until about 2015, when I once again just reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, what's going on? And he told me his work down in Area X. And um, that's when I again, I said, you remember that, that radio tag trap we were talking about, you know, years ago? And I think there was a delay in emails for a day or two. And then he came back all excited. And um, that's when I found out he was with you folks. He pointed me to your website and I started reading uh, the, the, the various reports you had up there. And I got mm-hmm. really excited. And, um, and that's kind of how it all started. Did you read the, the monograph uh, during that period I did. of time? Yes, I did. It was it was fascinating. Some people in the group know this. Uh, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a believer. That's different from someone who actually knows the animal exists. I mean, I've never sure. seen the animal. Um, I've, I've investigated, you know, a few dozen reports up in Maine and in New England in general, but never saw anything that convinced me that the animal was real, at least in this part of the country. And mm-hmm. and again, I'll be I'll be wondering if I until I see it on the slab, I won't be you know, hey, it, they truly exist. But you know, as a biologist, I approach it. There's no reason why this animal couldn't exist. Something is out there. Something is getting all these people wound up down there. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's it just, you know, the, otherwise they're wasting their time, you know, chasing fairies. So right. um, that's what really intrigued me about this group here. There were people who were, were scientists who were, who were military, former military, you know, archaeologists. We had people really, from my perspective, intelligent people very well organized people the logistics are there they were committed and that's what really intrigued me about this group if i remember correctly you had heard about or read that we were using the string traps just to determine movement where did the idea come from to potentially marry the string trap with the radio tag you know again brian i think it just sort of evolved from my earlier discussions um all those years before right i had envisioned using fish hooks actually um dangling from these tags and then you know trying to again to figure out my head how could we set this up in the woods um in a a remote situation and you know i'm thinking these dangly hooks are all shiny and you know is that going to work i don't know but and so i sent you know i'd sketch some ideas and send them to elton and and i believe that's when we forwarded them on to mark and then because mark had a a great idea of using these cockle burrs and um the rest is history um so it, it really was the uh, the collaboration of, like, I think, the three of us and maybe a few others who, who made this work. Um, I can't, I certainly can't take all the credit. Um, Mark's the one who put it into action. That's actually a great segue because we're going to have a conversation with Mark here in just a moment, talking about how he sort of worked and engineered that that system. So, as I was saying a, a, a little bit ago, we we had to figure out a way to get an animal to tag itself. Are you aware or familiar with any examples of where a, a, a biologist has been able to get an animal to put one of these tags on itself somehow, based on what it was doing, as opposed to the biologist doing it himself or herself? Yeah, you know, I, I I'm not familiar with it. Um, I I did do some research afterwards, and, and I didn't come across anything in the literature. That doesn't mean it hasn't been done, but I'm certainly not aware of it. Sure. In my opinion, it was a pretty novel approach. Yeah. And certainly, and, and, you know, for the species that we're trying to prove exists, uh, it's the first that I know of. So I'm, I'm very excited to be involved with that. Obviously, I followed all the, the, the troubles the group was having tracking these animals. You know, my understanding of the train down there is extremely rugged, um, deep valleys, lots of hills and mountains. Right. Um, the, the animal could be tagged with the, the, the transmitter, the transmitter transmitting it a quarter mile away and you, you, you just wouldn't pick up the signal depending on, you know, what's in between you and the signal. Yeah. So 
there's so many nuances to telemetry that you, it's really trial and error. You can read all the books you want, watch all the YouTube videos you want, but until you actually go out there and, and work and it's not what you think. Um, there's a lot of different things that can affect the signal that you get. Um, the terrain is a big one. Density of the, of the forest that you're working in. You know, I've, I've worked in both river systems where, um, and, and on lakes where, you know, you could pick up the signal a mile or two away. And then in a river gorge situation where I couldn't pick it up until I got within a few hundred yards. It's a tricky, tricky line of work. In fact, when we have the conversation with the guys I'm not to track, that was the, the night that it deployed. We were able to pick up the tag very loudly there at camp. But after that, it was gone. And it was gone for the whole rest of the summer. We never had any contact with the tag until the next year when we put a plane up in the sky. Yeah, and that was, you know, again, that was just <laughs> providence because I've worked through those issues in, in my right. in my prior work where it was actually during the tagging study where we were tagging and tracking brook trout and landlocked salmon and just kind of getting a sense of how they were living and moving around, what types of habitat they used behind this, this dam. And um, we were losing fish. And, you know, we were surgically implanting the tags, and so that some of them were mortality. But some of them would just, you'd still be able to find the dead fish with the tag in it. Right. Um, but some of them just completely disappeared off our radar. And so the, the lead biologist at the time was a great biologist and, and one of my mentors. Um, he's the one who said, let's get up in the air and look for these things. And he went out and he found these trout had moved about 15 miles away from where we initially tagged them. Wow. So incredible movements that we never would have found unless we had got up in the air. And so when the crews were out looking for this tag, that you know, I was able to recall that, well, we had a similar situation where we lost our tagged animals. We had to go up in the air, and I'm, I'm happy that they were able to take that advice and do it. It's no easy undertaking. Yeah, exactly. They pulled it off and, and, and reestablished contact. So I look at things like, well, the tag height was seven and a half feet. You know, okay, well, that's going to narrow down the potential tagged animals quite a bit. You're not going to have a, a, a rabbit jumping that high, for example. Correct. Probably not going to have a deer jump that high. And even if a deer could jump that high, which they can, is, is a tag going to stick and stay attached to that animal all those months? Um, probably not. So I really appreciated when the group, we had a good exercise of just vetting down and eliminating the animals that most likely could not be. And it's really narrowed it down to just one animal that it could be. Right, right. In fact, uh, when Mark was uh, developing his deployment system, uh, he tested various types of animal fur and feathers and that sort of thing, trying to make sure that, that what we were going to deploy would actually stick to the animal we were interested in and and not so much to anything else. Right. I mean, and I think that was really critical, in my opinion, in narrowing down the, the, the list of suspects that it could be attached to. Now, you um, you reached out for us to the company that makes these these tags and receivers. Is that correct? Uh, yes. And what's the name of the company? ATS, Advanced Telemetry Systems. Okay. There's a few different companies out there that, that make this type of technology. There's many of them, actually. I asked around my professional colleagues, what are they using for the most, it's been, you know, a decade or so since I had done any ray of telemetry work and um, they led me to ATS and they've been great to deal with. Are they, are they aware of what animals we're trying to track? <laughs> they are actually. Um, <laughs> I reached out to a few different, uh, I, I reached out to another uh, distributor or uh, manufacturer and needless to say I got some chuckles and that, that's fine. And then I reached out to ATS and, um, uh, this Tom Guerin is the one I was dealing with. And, and I, you know, I eventually have to tell him, you know, what we're trying to do. You know, I always wait for the, you got to be kidding me, but I, I never <laughs> got that from him. Cool. In fact, uh, I, I actually met him in person at, at a conference here a, a year ago and we were chit chatting about this and 
he said that someone else had reached out to him about the same time uh, I had. And so someone else out there had at least been thinking about yeah. it. Interesting. Um, yeah, it was interesting, but you know, no one's ever gone forward with it. Does he know the, the, the results that we've had, the success that we've had? I do know that he knows we tagged something. Okay. Um, I'm just curious. Hopefully, someday, that'll be a big deal for those guys. <laughs> All right, John. Well, I appreciate the time you spent with me. This has been super informative. Well, awesome. Keep up the good work, guys. Yeah, thank you. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Take care. So we had this idea to try and attach a nanotag to a wood ape, but the problem that we had was we didn't know how we could actually make it attached to the ape itself. And we've turned to our resident MacGyver of the group, Mark McClurkin, to do some beta testing on the tags and see if we can't make the tags deploy out in the field. Mark, thank you for joining me today. I'm glad to be here, Brandon. So where did you come up with the idea to try and make an ape attach itself with these tags? Well, it came from early discussions regarding our string traps and some advice to at least attempt to attach one of these nano tags. So we decided that the string traps, since they had been so effective in the past at determining where apes were passing through, the location they were traveling, and the times of day that they passed through an area, we decided that that needed to be our first method of employment. So the challenge from there was to figure out how to get one of these tags to stick to an ape. Right, and we and weren't going to be able to do it ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's not something where you can dart the animal or trap the animal and tag it like you would a bear or any other animal. So we started to just have various discussions, and one thing that popped into my mind is anybody that's ever hunted in Texas is familiar with cockleburrs. They're an absolute nightmare. They get in your shoestrings, your hair, your pants, cuffs, pretty much anything that they touch, they stick to. So my thought was to take a cockleburr and attach it to a tag and see if we could get it to stick. I tried several different types of epoxy. You, know, you try super glue, Elmer's glue, anything you can get a hold of to make the cockleburr stick to a tag. What kind of material did you try first? I know we, you went through an entire beta testing system and you tried a few different adhesive materials. What, what did you try to use? First, I started out with model glue because it sticks well to plastics and other materials, but it really didn't hold up to the rigors that I felt like we needed to put it through. Super glue was kind of the same thing. It, uh, more than anything, it just damaged the coating of the nano tags. So I eventually settled on a very strong adhesive that's used in jewelry making. And so this jewelry adhesive holds more than any of the cockleburrs can even handle. So the tag or the cockleburrs are going to break before it comes loose. And it won't damage the plastic coating that holds the nano tag together with its batteries and the antenna and, and keeps it waterproof. So once I'd really figured out which one of the epoxies would work best, that's when I started trying to test the individual test tags is what they really were. Fishing weight with cockleburrs glued to them. So that way we had the best representation of what we would come up with in the field. I essentially went out in my yard to set up a testing area with string traps. I tested using fake fur, rabbit fur, uh, raccoon pelt, turkey feathers, and several other things to try to get this tag to attach, to see what kind of animals it would attach to, what it would struggle to attach to. And what I found out in that first testing was that cockleburrs have to be hit pretty hard. So when they hit, 
They do hang up and they will stick in fur, but to really embed themselves is kind of a challenge. What happened when you tried to attach it to the feathers? When I tried to attach it to the feathers, it at most hung for five or ten seconds through just gentle jostling and it would fall off every time. So it would not stick to the feathers at all? Without anything else, just the cockle burr, it, it wouldn't even stick to the feathers at all. So after I go through testing with all these different types of pelts and the feathers, I just wasn't getting the result I wanted. So I figured that we would need a secondary adhesive. So you've got the burr, which has hooks on it, like hook and loop Velcro, that would normally hang in hair, but it just wasn't a strong enough bond. So I started out with some nasty and random things that I knew would stick to hair, but wouldn't necessarily cause a problem for the animal. You know, everything we wanted to use would at least be non-toxic and wouldn't harm the animal in any way. So I started out with marine grease. You know, eventually it's going to wear off, but it would give the cockle burr time to hang in the animal's hair and really get knotted up. And that one was actually the biggest problem of the bunch. It made it worse. It lubricated the hair, so it kept it from tangling at all. So anytime you bumped into the tag, it would just basically brush the animal's hair rather than cause it to mat and knot up. So that was a complete waste. So started over, cleaned the test tags, and I tried toilet seal wax. Anyone that's ever put a new seal on a toilet knows that that wax is disgusting and it takes forever to get off your hands. So I tried it, and it worked fairly well. I could get it to stick to everything but the feathers pretty tightly. But the issue was, after bouncing it for several minutes, just like an animal would brushing through bushes and grass, it um, pretty much had about five pounds of pressure to pull it loose, which isn't much. So if an ape reaches up, it's barely going to have to tug to pull this tag loose. And that's definitely not what we're looking for. And anything else that I'd tried to find would dry. So I sat around a few days, thought about it, tried to figure out what I could get. And it just occurred to me that rat trap glue stays sticky for months. It's very difficult to get off, but it's non-toxic. So I went and I bought a special kind of rat trap that is made solely of glue and a plastic base and just pulled the glue out. And it, it comes off pretty easily. You can wind a stick up in it and pull it loose and then just coat the tag with the stick. And after basic testing, just on even fake fur, rabbit fur, it, it didn't matter. It took over 20 pounds of pressure to remove that tag once it tangled into the hair. So there was no way this thing was going to come out without ripping a bald patch in the animal. But at the same time, it's not toxic. And eventually, it will. the animal will lose enough hair that it's just going to fall out. So that's really where I settled at at that point. The one thing that really stuck with me on it, though, is during that testing... I still couldn't get that tag to stick to the feathers for more than a few seconds. So if a bird hits it, it may carry the tag off, it may activate the tag, but it's not going to stick. It's either going to be pulled off during preening or it's going to fall off on its own. Right, and we tracked this tag over months, so I think that eliminates the possibility of a bird flying into it at all. Absolutely, we did test that. And on top of that, anyone that's ever worked with birds knows that when you tag a bird, even if you glue the tag to the bird physically, they're very, very rarely there more than a month or two. Occasionally, you'll see one that lasts three months. But that's really about the maximum that you can have when you have a tagged bird. So this tag far exceeded the life of any tag that would be attached to a bird. So it was clearly attached to a mammal of some sort. 
Can you explain the magnet system that we used? The nanotags are activated with a reed switch. And that reed switch that resides inside the tag is activated and deactivated by a magnet. So when the magnet's pulled away, the reed pops in place and activates the tag. But when the magnet's close, it's pulled away from the circuit and the tag's inactive. So the next challenge was really figuring out how to take that string trap and ensure that that magnet was pulled loose from the tag so that it's activated. To do that was definitely kind of a pain. But what I ended up doing was creating a loop out of wire. And it's a very stiff wire, but it's uh, a little heavier than fishing line as far as diameter. And I made a loop on each end, and I glued one loop to the magnet and one loop to the tag. That way they could float separately on the string of the string trap. I started out just using that to hang the two on the string trap, and I tested it repeatedly. And about half the time, the rat trap glue would stick the magnet to the tag, and so it wouldn't come loose, which obviously is a failed test as far as we're concerned. So what we ended up doing finally is using the two loops and putting both of them on the, the main line of the string trap, but using a secondary string to tie the magnet to the tree. That way, when the animal goes through the string trap trips, even if the rat trap glue is holding onto that magnet, that secondary string is going to catch and pull the magnet loose. And doing that, we got 100% activation. Every single test was successful, the timing on it was perfect, and there were no failed deployments using the rat trap glue and that secondary string with the magnet. So after we did all this testing, we actually deployed it? We did. Uh, we did some training and some testing, actually over near the airport in Dallas-Fort Worth, and deployed one of these tags and had two of our guys use the tracking system. They were fairly inexperienced with the system, but within 30 minutes, they were able to find this tag that I had manually deployed. And after that, we took it out, put it in the field, began our full testing in the field to see how it would work. Once we put it out in the field, were there any moments where the tag actually detached, but we found it later just lying on the ground? Or is there any mistakes that happened once we tested it out in the field? We had a few false triggers, which you would kind of expect when you've got just a magnet holding on to the back of the tag. So if you get heavy weather or a branch falls on it, it's going to knock the tag down. And because that secondary string's in place, it's going to detach the, the magnet from the tag. But each time we were able to look around on the ground, use the tracking system, and find the tags and redeploy them. So false triggers weren't really an issue. And usually we could find what caused the issue. Either we knew there was hard weather at the time or there was a stick that was clearly across the string trap, but they were never triggered by any other wildlife that we could tell. And how high in the air did we deploy these? Typically about seven feet. And how soon after we deployed it did it actually attach to an animal? It wasn't long at all. I guess a couple of weeks when we got our attachment. So we managed to get an animal to attach itself to the tag how long did we actually record the data after we managed to do that? For months, uh, all through the winter into the next spring. It's about nine months before it finally, the battery finally died on the tag. What is the battery life on those tags? It can vary. It can be anywhere from three months to a year, depending on how your tag is designed, what the use is, the size of the tag. But for these particular tags, the extent that you would expect it to last is about a year. So under ideal conditions a year, but nine months, we're absolutely thrilled with that amount of data.
these particular tags were actually designed for birds and small reptiles to be attached to the animal. So they're not really meant for things that are super long-term. Do you want to touch on anything else, Mark? Is there anything that I missed? Any important detail that we should go over? No, I think that's about it. Okay. Thanks for talking to us, Mark. All right. Paul Bowman Jr. coming to you from the Coffee House Roundtable. This is version number two. Let's just go around the table here and introduce ourselves. Yeah, this is Alton Higgins. I'm a retired biology professor from Oklahoma City. Ed Harrison. I'm an engineer. Tony Schmidt, a professional aviator. Daryl Collier. I'm in the financial industry, ex-Air Force Intelligence. And I'm Paul Bowman Jr., and I'm a bagpiper. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about tag number seven. And uh, Alton, why don't you kind of summarize... Uh, how that thing kicked off. Well, I was the one that helped place them. I think it was June 2015. And then uh, August, I showed up again on August 29th to uh, relieve the team that was on site. And when I got there, it was uh, in the evening. And as I was uh, unpacking and saying hi to all fellows and stuff, I I was near what we called Tag 7. And I went over just to look at it because I was going to put my tent up near that tag. And I couldn't find it. And I'm looking around, I'm shining my light, and where in the world is that thing? Uh-oh. <laughs> so I, I thought, well, I think I tied it to that tree over there. There was a, a large tree on the side of the trail. And sure enough, I, I saw the, the string tied around the, uh, the tree, and there was the magnet hanging down, and the tag was gone. And the guys that were there, they were, they were shocked. Uh, Scott, he was the team leader, he was just like flabbergasted he said we checked that thing earlier today and he said it was it was good and as it turned out prior to my arrival there camp was was uh, deserted for I don't know an, an hour or so and apparently it was during that time frame when this tag disappeared and so um, Scott ran and got the, uh, the the receiving unit and turned it on and boom 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 we're getting maxed out hits from this thing he was close yeah, it was, it was sending uh, maxed out signals. And so our objective was to um, collect a specimen. And so we made the decision to um, go after it first thing in the morning when we could see, because we were hoping that if we were able to follow it, draw near it, that uh, it might drop down to hide behind a log or in the tall grass or behind brush or something. So we were hoping that it would try to evade detection in that manner, you know, dropping down. Did you check it more than once that evening, or was it just? did you just check it once? I think we checked it a couple of times. I don't know if that's in the notes or, or not. I haven't reviewed the notes for a long time. I think we did. I think we checked it a couple of times. It was already fairly late. I think I got there around 9. We uh, weren't up an awful long time after that because we were going to get up early the next morning to, to go look for it. That's right. I remember now, the assumption was it happened around 1,600 hours, 4 p.m. This thing took this tag. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Anyway, we, uh, we got up bright and early the next morning and turned on the receiver and nothing, not a single little blip, zero. My thinking at the time was that um, it had taken the tag off and, and dropped it in a little transmitter, dropped it someplace maybe in a creek, arroyo, or behind some big boulders or, or something like that and was blocking the signal. That's pretty much what we thought. So... In that next week, we searched high and low for that signal. 
I mean, we went up and down the creek, up and down both mountains that uh, bordered the valley, all around. Never got a single little blip, nothing. And, I mean, the receiver was still working. You know, we could pick up signals from the other transmitters. We had seven of the things, or actually six at that point. One of them malfunctioned shortly after it was deployed. We got nothing, nothing at all. So I was thinking that... You tested the receiver to make sure it was working with the other tags, and it was everything was working fine. Yeah, it was working. It was working fine. So in Soviet Russia, they would say, Nichevo niet. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I think I know what that interpretation would be, yeah. So anyway, that's our sad story. <laughs> Daryl, can you tell us, how did, how did we come to the decision to send a bird up in the air? How did that transpire later on that, that, that fall? Yeah, well, we had our retreat shortly after Operation Resolute concluded, and it just so happened that we have five pilots in the NAWAC, and you know how pilots are, man. They think they're the biggest, baddest dudes on the planet, and they all got together. We could find that tag. Just send us out. And, and so sort of did. <laughs> 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 yeah, and they used all the checklists available, and they found the tag. <laughs> so, yeah, th we had several pilots. That they just came forward, and they said, here am I. Send me. Well, That's operation was, was over at that time, right? The operation was done just a couple weeks after the tag was deployed? Yes, Operation Resolute had concluded. We had our annual retreat, and we were all gathered, like we do at the end of every year when we get done with our summer operations, to evaluate everything that's happened. And the pilots got together, came to the board, and said, here we are, send us. We can go find that tag. Well, it was John, though, that actually recommended going up in the air. Because, you know, everyone in the organization was, was aware of the fact that we'd lost that signal. John kept telling us, get up in the air. He said, even if it's behind a rock or if it's in a creek bottom someplace where, where when you're on the ground, you can't pick up the signal. He said, if you're in the air, you're going to be able to pick up the signal. He didn't just say it once. He kept on us about it, as I recall. He kept, man, you got to get a bird up in the air. You got, you know, get somebody up in the air. And, and that's when we, I guess, I can't remember who's, I, I mean, who came forward. I don't know if y'all came for the pilots came forward. Yeah, uh, well, remember our group, uh, fellow named Aaron uh, had access to a small uh, single-engine Cessna, a Cessna 140, I believe, little tail dragger. And we just started hatching a plan. We said, okay, how are we going to do this? And we, we came up with a way to carry the antenna in the airplane. I actually contacted ATS, and uh, I said, look, we, we want to get the maximum range and then accuracy from the antenna. What do we do? And they said, well, we'll cut you an antenna specifically for the frequency. So I gave them the frequency of the tag. They cut the antenna, they sent it to me, and I got together with Aaron. We just loaded up, we, we got the charts out, and we launched, and uh, we uh, so flipped to the valley. December 4th, 2015, so September, October, November. This was three full months later after Alton had tracked the tag initially and found out that the tag had deployed. It was a full three months later oh, before yeah. we sent the reconnaissance bird up in the air. And we didn't really, I don't. I don't recall ever having any kind of hope or no. thought whatsoever that we were going to find that totally thing. Skeptical. I was. Well, I, I was just looking forward to a, a cool ride in a, in a small, light airplane. I haven't done that in a while. You know, I fly bigger airplanes, and you know, Aaron's a good guy. I figured, oh, this will be fun. You know, we'll go fly over the valley, and, yeah, and the off chance, you know, maybe we'll get something. So we loaded up, and we launched, and we entered the valley uh, from the west side. And the weather that day, <laughs> Area X, uh, God bless Area X, it's a, it's a hoot. The weather was actually generally very nice everywhere else. 
right. And so we're approaching Area X, and it's like something out of a B-grade movie. It's like dark, and this towering cube, and it's off to the west, and the ceilings are dropping, and Aaron and I are chuckling to each other, you know. Curse of Sasquatch. Lightning bolts. Yeah, you know, <laughs> gods of the sky are angry. And, <clears throat> but, you know, we're sky-going Vikings. We don't care. So we, we press on. We enter the valley. And we, uh, a little over the top, sorry. It's overly dramatic. So we enter the valley in the airplane, and, and we're flying. And uh, really nothing, not getting any hits, which at that point didn't surprise me at all. I wasn't expecting to get anything that day. And as we continued east, the, the ceilings continued to drop. And the airplane we were in is not suitable to flying in instrument conditions, so we had to stay in clear air. We couldn't fly in the clouds. So we got to the east end of the valley. We did a 180. We started proceeding westbound. And Aaron and I decided, well, this isn't productive, so let's go north. Let's explore the valleys to the north. Who was the pilot? Who was the raven? Aaron was the pilot, and I was in the right seat. I was, yeah. I was operating the, uh, the ATS system. They were proceeding on the same assumptions that most of the rest of us had, that these creatures were resident in that one valley. Right, uh, yeah, absolutely. But we figured, well, we didn't get anything here. Let's go to the north. Let's try the valleys to the north. And we did. We, we flew to the north and pretty close to the terrain. Uh, easy visual range of whatever was on the ground. You know, just, you know, two football fields, if that. So we topped the terrain, and shortly thereafter, you know, I'm, I'm watching the, the equipment, and all of a sudden I started getting full-blown returns. And, and I couldn't believe it. It, it. it really, it knocked the wind out of me. I was like, oh, I, I, and I showed Aaron. I just kind of, I tilted the, the, the receiver. Here. Yeah, full full how, deflection. How long did it take you before you guys got a signal? How long were you in the in the valley in that region? So from entering the valley? Oh, not, no, not even that long. Because we just, we, we flew into the valley. That took maybe five minutes to fly to the east. And we made our turn. So maybe 10 minutes. And after, like I said, after cresting the ridge and, and flying to the north, bam, that started, things started popping. And I would, like I said, I was... I was flabbergasted. I just showed Aaron the unit. I, you know, I'm, I'm like holding it up, and he's looking at it. I'm like, yeah, I'm thumbs up. He's pretty loud in the cockpit. So anyway, we, Aaron started dropping at a GPS team. We started dropping pins. And so we flew to the north until we started losing the signal. Aaron executed the left turn. We did a 270. We came back to the area, and sure enough, we, we kept getting hits, all localized in that one area. And we kept three, three, miles, three, north. three miles north of, of, original position. of where it was deployed yeah. originally. We just kept dropping pins. We kept flying around the whole area. And we, in, in that valley, we flew to the east as far as we could. We got nothing. We flew to the west. And we just kept flying around, you know, trying to see if, well, you know, maybe the unit is picking up interference or maybe the unit, it, we're getting spurious hits from other areas. And we never got that. All the hits we got on that unit came from that same localized area. At some point, you know, we had to leave the, the area of operations because, you know, we're running low on fuel. We had to depart. But... We're, you know, I was, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting a little excited right now. They had the hair standing up on my arms because it was, it was just so freaking awesome. <laughs> and Tony called me. In, in fact, uh, you just touched down. Yeah. You're in, you're in Idabel, right? Yeah, we stopped in Idabel for fuel. And he was kind of speechless. He was, he's like, well, uh, I, I've got some, <laughs> I've, got, I've got some information for you. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Uh, and he started, <laughs> he started telling me, I got these hits here, here. I said, send me. Send me the coordinates. So he sent me all these coordinates, and he sent me a map. And I was like, okay, wh why are you having a problem with this? You got contact with the tag. Well, I know. I just can't believe it. Well, believe it. You, uh, this is the data. The data do not lie. Well, then I called Mark McClurkin because he, at this point, you know, Mark's probably one of the most versed members of our group with this equipment. And I called Mark, and I'm like, Mark, i got to talk to you, man. <laughs> this is what I saw. This is what I experienced. He goes, well, okay, where was your gain set? I said, well, the gain was set at about two-thirds. Okay, where was... 
you know, what what level of return were you getting? I said, well, f pretty much full scale. Pulsing hits. Yeah. And he goes, only on that frequency. Yeah, only on that frequency. He goes, well, he goes, that settles it. You're getting return on that tag. Yeah, and he was, he was shocked like the rest of us when we found out about the location. I mean, it was not what we expected. They were as shocked as we were. I think it's, it's, it's worthy to point out that this was this is two ridge lines. I mean, very rugged, densely forested ridge lines to the north of where we originally put uh, had deployed the tag. I remember when when we talked about launching the bird and, and launching this reconnaissance mission. I was highly skeptical. I think I called Alton and I said, "They're not going to get anything, man. That thing's long gone. It's." It probably pulled it off his body, crushed it on a rock, and it's gone, or whatever. Or, yeah, something. They're not going to get anything. And Tony calls me, and I'm like, you got to be freaking kidding me. I was totally not expecting I mean, I think, I think I sent out to the board. I think I sent a text. We have contact. It was like somebody woke the dead. You know, someone shows up from the grave, you know, three months later after they've been put in the ground. It's, it was insane. So, Daryl, why don't you tell us a little bit about how we assembled a ground team and a, and a subsequent uh, air reconnaissance mission uh, on January 1st, as I recall. Yeah, well, as soon as, soon as Tony and Aaron, um, you know, relayed this information from December 4th, uh, the wheels started turning. We wanted, to, uh, we wanted to launch a bird again. We wanted to send another bird up. There was no feet on the ground before that point, but just, just the bird and that was it. That was the first contact and no other contact had been made. That is absolutely right. There was no contact from August 29th to December 4th. We did not have a clue where that tag had gone. We knew something had, ta had taken the tag. It, you know, somehow, some way, something or someone had taken the tag. We didn't have a clue where it was. We hadn't had, had anybody on the ground. December 4th, Tony and Aaron went up. They reestablished contact three miles to the north. Boom, that's huge. So then we began having immediate discussions about we've got to get a ground team in. And, of course, we all know having been there as many times as all of us have been there, that it's very prohibitive terrain. And we knew that it was not going to be easy. Plus, we've got to coordinate a mission from a bird, an aircraft. Who knows where the tag is now? Because if it was three miles to the north, there's no telling where it would be now. That's right. And so, and, and so we knew it was going to be at least a couple of weeks before, from de December 4th before we could get a team back up there. We didn't just want to send a ground team into that spot. We wanted to have a bird in support of the ground team that could then send the ground team into the next spot, hopefully, where the, airbo where the airborne reconnaissance team would reestablish contact. And so we decided January 1st, 2016, that was the next time we were going to send three teams, two ground teams, potentially. We had the means to do that. And then an airborne team. Ed, you were the raven on the airborne team. Okay, the way it, way it started out, we started out basically the same, the same way that Tony did, Tony and Aaron did. Basically, we flew in the same the same direction, took the same route. Uh, it was a little bit different day, as I remember. This was a cold day, and it was uh, there was no cloud cover. It was clear. Yeah, it was clear, so we didn't have any ceiling like what you guys had. You guys had a low ceiling, and I remember Aaron making making that comment that uh, we were going to fly a little higher this time, and we you know it was it was perfectly clear, and we started getting constant pulsing hits. That's solid contact, and so we started making loops in that area, and we started getting the same thing in the same area. Over and over again, solid hits. We, we would turn the, the gain down. You know, we'd get pulsing hits at about three or four. We'd turn the gain up. We'd get pulse. Yeah, pulses is about seven or eight hits. And at that point, we discovered that we kind of we got a, 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 bunch, a bunch of hits, and we kind of 
decided, well, we're going to give Daryl the centroid of where all these hits are. We, we kind of had an area we didn't know exactly where it was because we were using omnidirectional antenna. It wasn't, it wasn't a directional, so we didn't really know where it was. We just know it was below us somewhere at that time. And so at that point, we, we decided to get, we had to bug out anyway because we were low on fuel, so we had to leave. <laughs> and so at that point, we, in fact, I was doing a calculation on where the actual point was supposed to be to give you as we were leaving the valley. And, and, and we, we actually had radios. We, were, we, we had uh, 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 radios, and we were contacting via radio to the ground crew who was waiting for the information. And we, we were saying, okay, we're going to give you the coordinates in just a second. You know, let us figure out where it is. And at that point, that's where we, uh, we radioed down to you, down, down on the ground to the ground team, where we believed the, the, uh, the centroid of that cluster of hits that we were getting. That was four miles to the east from the second contact. Okay, so the first contact was in the original valley. The December 4th contact was three miles north of that. The January 1st contact was four miles east of that. So I think it's, I think it's worthy to point out here that for the longest time, we've always kind of assumed that they resided in this one singular valley. And never in our wildest dreams did we ever really assume that, that we knew that they could venture out and often did. But we just, in terms of like, a general idea of a home range or something. We just never thought. Yeah, this was all new information to us. We had no idea what we were going to get when we were flying over. So, Daryl, take us through, because I was there. I know, uh, were you there, Tony, on the ground? Yeah. Yeah. So walk us through, once we get those that coordinate, what, what do we do next? We deployed quickly. We hightailed it to this centroid, this cluster. Now, this is in January. It's getting dark soon, probably, what, next couple hours. So you guys had to, you had to get there quick. We had to expedite, no doubt about it. We had the, the, uh, the directional antenna as opposed to what Ed and them had up, up in the air. They had the, the omnidirectional. So we actually now have, a, on the ground, we have a directional antenna. So if we can get into the general vicinity, now we can track it on the ground. And we've got four-wheel drive pickups, but we've also got a four-seater ATV at our disposal for that day. So we went back to our base camp. We immediately suited up, prepared. We got the ATV. We went to the, the vicinity of the centroid of contacts that the uh, reconnaissance team had taken. And then we deployed, Paul, you led a team on the ATV, a four-man team, in pursuit of this contact. And there were three of us left behind with vehicles. And this was actually on the far service road. And we began hearing wood knocking in the woods toward the centroid of the contacts. In the direction where they were going? Yes. And uh, Mike Mays and I actually saw movement probably 100, 150 yards down that trail. We could, it was just a big tree and it's like there was something moving there, but we couldn't make it out. Tony, why don't you, because uh, you were, I, I was driving. You know, we'd gone from the airborne reconnaissance to a second airborne reconnaissance. We actually, we had, we had narrowed the search area now down to several hundred yards. Mm -hmm. So we'd gone from miles to right. several hundred yards. Right. It was pretty exciting. In pursuit, on yeah. foot, yeah. of something that has taken a tag at seven and a half feet up in the tree ago, that had tagged itself months ago, five miles as the crow flies. In the line of tracking, it was a full seven miles from point A to point B, Bravo, to point C, Charlie, which was the one we were now tracking, yeah. seven miles in a linear fashion. Who, who is now wood knocking at us. Right. Right. Something is wood knocking. Yeah. Time, we didn't know when we had deployed down that trail. We didn't know that they were hearing wood knocks. We heard the wood knocks. Yeah, yeah we yeah. did. We didn't know. So anyway, yeah, no, we, we deployed on foot and we were out there until it got dark. 
we're riding around. Yeah. At this point, too, after we flew back, we had no idea if we gave you the right information or not. We were we were crossing our fingers. We were open. We were praying that we gave you guys the right information because we didn't hear from you guys from for a long time. And we had no idea if we, if we were getting solid contact. Not we thought we did because yeah. we had solid you know contact from from the air. But we had no idea what you guys were going to encounter. We didn't know if we were sending you on a wild goose chase or if you guys were going to end up in the, in in the bee's nest. The information you gave us that led us to that area when we took off on the ATV. You know they're hearing wood knocks and we're going down this trail and we're starting to get returns. We're far away from any interference. I mean we're not near. We're not near power lines. We're not near cell phone towers in that area. We're not near anything. And we have the omnidirectional antenna, which is accurate. And we're getting hits on that frequency for that tag. So that was, you know, that's huge. So, Al, why don't you tell us about when you were with uh, Philo and you guys had your hits? Those were the next hits. Yeah. I was there with Phil Burroughs and Robert Taylor, who coincidentally enough is another one of our jet pilots. Um, yeah, we, we drove all over creation. We were uh, fortunate to, to pick up really strong signal on, on Highway 63 towards the uh, Kaimichi River. And, uh, you know, kind of like, like you all, you know, you, you get these strong hits and you're going, is this the real deal? I mean, it looks like the real deal. You know? <laughs> I know right, it. Yeah, pulses. yeah. Strong pulses. Um, at any rate, we were getting this, this signal from, um, from the north. And we... Uh, to test ourselves, we, we drove a little ways, I don't know, a quarter of a mile or so to the, to the west and then checked for the signal again and we picked it up again, but it was back in the direction where we had just left. And then we went a little farther west and did the same thing. And again, we, we got the signal from the direction that, that we had come from. Well, after, I don't know, a mile or so of this, we stopped getting any signal at all, but we kept going quite a ways out the highway to see if we were gonna get anything from anything else and then we went north and tried to cut back east to see if we could pick up signals from uh, maybe behind the source of the signal and that, that didn't work out but saying all that to say we did a lot of running around trying to pick up you know additional signal or hits got nothing we uh drove back i think it was two and a half hours later was this at night or was this during the daytime this was at night yeah yeah it was freezing Phil especially was freezing his <laughs> balls off. We were freezing. <laughs> anyway, we went back to the uh, to the spot, and uh, two and a half hours later, and again we picked up the signal. But but this time Robert said, you know, this this signal's coming from from uh, the south now. It, it looked like in the two and a half hours since we had been there, that it had crossed the the road and went back towards the uh, towards the south. Daryl, through the course of this entire season, we've had numerous hits, but that was these are some of the more significant ones. Of course, they were the earlier hits, but there's some more. Why don't you tell us about some some other ones that were significant? Well, I mean, the next one, the next one was uh, I mean, Alton and Follow, Alton and Follow, and Robert Taylor. I mean, they tracked it again the next morning, uh, which was an additional hit on that particular team. Now, two to three weeks later, Tony Schmidt and Doc Haithcote go in. The two-man team, they established contact five miles to the south of where Higgins and Burroughs and Taylor had last taken contact. Five miles. Okay, so now so now we're talking point A to point B is three miles. 
point B to point C is four miles. D and E were to the north of C, about a mile. Point F is five miles to the south, straight south. Just like when Philo and Alton and Robert last got the contact, they, they seemed to think it was heading south. It did. It went way south, another five miles. Well, what I remember when Dustin and I were up there, <clears throat> the, the hit we got on that when we were aiming the antenna down in, into, into Beach Creek, it was very powerful. Uh, there's no interference possible in that area. I mean, we're, we're, yeah, oh yeah, it was solid pulse. It was, it was textbook. It was beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it was, I got really excited and I said, Dusty, come over here, put your eyes on this. And, and he was watching it. It was, it was wonderful. It was, you know, solid, full scale, full deflection hits. Uh, actually turned the gain down about half and we're still getting, you know, three quarter bar hits. It was solid. It was really solid. And <clears throat> then it started to fade. Now we weren't moving. It's moving. It's moving. Right. And so we stood there and we watched it till it faded out. Awesome. And it, yeah, it was, it was amazing. The next trip, Paul, was you and Tony and Robert Taylor again. This is now two miles farther to the east. And this is when, y'all need to tell this story. Yeah, this was kind of a hoot. Uh, we were in the Polaris Ranger, and we had gone down the creek, or down a road that, that sort of uh, heads down to the creek. And uh, we just decided we're going to start taking every little trail. Had y'all already been all over hailing back? trying to track this thing when you finally got this contact? I think you had, we like for two days, road, right? Yeah, for a while. Yeah. 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 I remember I remember we went, I, I burned through an entire tank yeah. of gas that just on that day yeah. in the, in the Ranger. It's got a pretty good, yeah. Wow. Well, and that thing will cover some ground. Yeah. <laughs> some gnarly ground. Yeah, and just to add, you know, we would spend several days out there to get one good solid hit. It, it, was, it was a real team effort just to get one data point because, you know. Excellent point. Uh, it took a group effort to get just one of these points. It wasn't like we just stumbled out there and boom, shakalaka, we get contact. No, we're talking days out there, two and three days. Sometimes we had teams out there for three or four days with no contact. Driving, turning over every stone, looking in every possible place we could think of, driving in highways, driving in ATVs, out on foot. The terrain is just incredibly steep and rough. And you know, it's, it's a semi-miracle that, that you do get a hit. And you're right, I mean, it would take hours and hours, days sometimes to, uh, to, get, to get a hit. We've been driving around for several hours, <clears throat> covering a lot of ground. We decided to head to the south, and we crossed the creek at one point. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty treacherous crossing. But, and then we saw a trail. I, I dare call it a trail, but it was, it was obviously an, old, an older trail off the Forest Service Road, so it wasn't an actual road. And we decided, let's, let's just see how far this goes. Now, keep in mind, this is a four-seater Polaris, so it's, it's bigger than your average four-wheeler. And the problem was is we were running into all kinds of deadfall. And we were sometimes able to get around it, sometimes we were able to move it, and sometimes we had to get creative. But we decided to take this little trail, this side trail off the, the main road, it basically went down to a tributary of, of the creek, and we stopped and, you know, turned the engine off, and you got out, and tell us what happened. Well, I got out, and I started scanning, and as I turned to the east, I started getting hits. Yeah. And, whoa, hey, so we, we went on foot. We and dismounted. you took off in a dead sprint. Well, I... Right? <laughs> yeah. You chased after it. Yeah. We, well, we started getting stronger hits, and you have to bear in mind, man, we, we've been in this pursuit now for a while. You guys a lot longer than me. And I'm getting hits. So I just got frustrated. I got mad. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, I uttered a few expletives. I just started running. <laughs> and 
Yeah, yeah, and I'm just running after. I'm just, I'm just going after the signal, armed with a radio receiver. You know, that's my weapon. And so, cooler heads prevailed, and uh, I was told uh, they, they they pulled the leash back, and we we. Yeah, we, but what happened there? Well, we we got close, and and I I thought I was getting close because the you know the the, the gain I, I had the gain turned down, the hits started increasing, and then the damn thing started moving, and we got outflanked. So, That's what happened. So, uh, to kind of summarize how how this thing works, it's almost like something right out of a movie or out of TV. But you you point in a direction, and the signal gets strong, and as you move to the left or right and scan, the signal will 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 reduce. When, and so that's how you're able to kind of, so what I told Tony to do is I said when you get the strongest hit I want you almost like you're shooting a transect with a compass just look at a tree or a prominent mark 50 yards ahead that's and right. walk to it that's good and then when, and then stop and we'll be right behind you and when you get there then you you know cause continue to scan while you're walking but shoot uh, it again. but shoot it again and so what happened there it's like taking an azimuth Exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, it, that's at some point. That's why I just started running because I I got frustrated and I, I tore off and you guys came after me and uh, I I was told to no, uh, tell, cease and desist. Tell, tell the truth. <laughs> it's because you didn't have your checklist and you panicked. That's right. Yeah. I I pilot lost checklist. all that's right. Lost all sensibility and uh, <laughs> went in went in panic, warned out, beat the panel, scream and shout. <laughs> and nice, nice. <laughs> And uh, so it, it started moving on us. I, you know, I, I'm not going to chase down a wood ape. It no. ain't going to happen. I, so, well, I remember Paul calling me after this. And by the way, y'all heard a wood knock in camp, which was about a half yeah, a mile north of this right. the Later night on. before. No, it was, it was that night or was it the night before? I thought it was the night before y'all heard a wood knock in a camp a half mile to the north. It may have been. I, I remember the wood knock. Yeah. But now I'd have to go back and look at the notes. Before. Okay. All right. He was reporting all this stuff to me. And so he calls me after this and he goes, I, I'm, I refuse to believe we're tracking this animal that's, that's got a tag on it and it just ran around us. I refuse to believe that. I said, so, why, Paul? So what, hap <laughs> what happened was as, as we, we did this sort of a land navigation type of, of technique uh, and we ended up covering, I don't know, what do you think, half a mile maybe? Oh, yeah, easily. Oh well, we have. Oh, okay. I see what you're getting at. Tell, tell what happened. What, what? Okay. All right. So we're tracking this thing, and it's moving. So we're following it, and I'm not going to chase it down. So I, cooler heads prevailed, and I slowed down. It's fun train, though, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we're 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 pursuing the tag, and we're walking, we're walking, and we end up doing a gigantic 180. And we and we didn't know that we're in a huge back. turning circle, and the damn thing led us back to the ATV. Because yeah. I'm walking along, and I'm looking in the distance. I'm like, "Holy crap! That's the ATV. We're back to the trail it's, we just left." He, yeah. it's, he's, he's a master at escape and evasion. He's eluding you. You're trying to pursue this I, guy. I have no idea. We're walking in a giant circle. Yeah. Now, when you're when you're when you did it like we did it, where you're walking, basically shooting an asthma to a tree, you know, 50, 70 yards, and you're following this radio signal. What ended up happening is in the course of doing that, we ended up making a complete beeline right back to where we started from. Pointing, right, pointing, pointing in, the, in the opposite direction, wow. to the north. How far did you guys travel at that point? From the arc, it was a good half mile. It wasn't very sloped, but it was very rugged, and it had lots of little gullies and draws. And did, did you know that we were in a giant turning arc the whole time? Did you know that we were, t I didn't. I had no, I no, had it didn't, we it didn't feel like it at all. I, in fact, I kept thinking we're eventually going to hit back up on the yeah. road. Because it looked like we were heading in that direction, and then all of a sudden, we're walking straight back to the. You can see the Dagum yeah. uh, Polaris, and it's like, what the hell? What just happened? 
Well, we just had our asses handed to us was, by an ape. <laughs> I, was, I was pissed off. Well, you kind of refused to believe it. I mean, well, when, you, when you called me, you just would not accept it. You were just like, I refuse to believe that this thing outsmarted us, that it outflanked us. And I said, Paul, why? What's so hard to believe about that? Well, because I, I, I just assumed that we would have been able to see what, what was, know it, you know... Or track. I, I, but again, we already established that we can reach out to 300, 350 meters. So he, I mean, I don't know what, what bars you were getting. I was getting, I was getting some significant hits. Six and seven bar hits? Oh, easy. Yeah. He's probably 100 meters from you. And you know in those woods, 100 meters, just, you're not going to see it. No, you're not going to see anything. You're not gonna, and you're not going to hear anything either. Yeah. You know, if it's, if, if yeah. it's moving stealthy that far away, you're not going to hear it. Well, <laughs> well, and then, and so the, the signal went cold. And we basically went limp back to camp with our tails tucked between our legs, and I was frustrated as hell. And Daryl, why don't you? What are what are some other significant hits that we've had uh, subsequent to that that day? Well, we continued to get uh, we, we continued to take contact through the following months, March, April, May. We continued to get hits, and then I think the most significant uh, contact taken in my mind was in June when Higgins and Kellum drove all over Helengon to get this thing, and they finally found contact. They took contact up on the Kamichi Ridge, and there were dogs down there. And just Alton, that you need to tell this story. Yeah, I was with Blake. I wish Blake was here to tell the story. Uh, he was uh, he was a really good partner. We drove all over the place. <laughs> We shot down this valley. He kind of predicted, as I recall, that we might get something down there, a hit down there, and sure enough, we did. We heard some, some noises. At first, it was confusing off in the distance. What is that? And then we figured out that it was, uh, that it was dogs. And I guess coonhounds or something. I'm, I'm not really sure. We tried to talk to the fellows when we later saw them, but they were, they were taken off. Had a big truck with horses. and. No. No, we've seen, I remember in January, we saw some coon hunters with dogs and horses. That's right. Yeah, so they, that's, that, they do that a lot down there, I believe. Well, this was bloody hot, and, I, and this was the top of the mountain. I'm not sure what they're doing up there with coon hounds, but, but at any rate, we heard these, these uh, weird noises. We figured out, you know, because of the distance, attenuation of the sound and all that. But uh, we got back in the, in the truck and headed, headed towards the sound on top of the ridge there. And uh, then we're shooting down into the valley from a, from a different angle, and over to um, to the east, we're getting we're getting these uh, these hits. These hunters, they were on horses, and they were just screaming at their dogs. I mean, just like they were wanting to kill the stupid things, and they were after them big time. And they called the dogs in. Well, because in the coon hunting world, if your dogs hit on anything else, I mean, it, that's bad bad news. And um, most, I mean, I've seen coon hunters go into rages when their dogs hit trash, as they call it. You know, they're they're going after something they're not trained to go after. And I'm wondering if that's kind of what was happening here. Yeah, and it makes me kind of wonder, too. The ape was running in the opposite direction of the dogs. Is that correct? It was running away from the dogs? Well, that's what we determined, you know, after we were there for a bit. You know, like, like Daryl indicated, these guys were screaming. They sounded like they were ready to murder their dogs. And... and uh, <laughs> They called them in and they loaded up and meanwhile we're, we're tracking this signal and it went from, from being kind of to our southwest uh, to where it was below us and then as we were, you know, continued to monitor, we, we'd, you know, you're kind of always sweeping. You're sweeping the antenna and you're getting a hit there and you kind of go side to side and, and uh, so 
you know, you look at a branch or something, you know, I'm getting my really good hit from that direction. Well, we'd stop getting the hit from that direction, it was farther to the, to the east. And then it'd be farther, you know, to the, to the east a little more. The, the tag's moving, the ape's moving. Exactly. I mean, that's that's what we determined, and and as we kept as we kept <laughs> as we kept um, monitoring this thing, it became clear that it, it was actually kind of circling below us. Then it came up to the top of the ridge and went down on the uh, the north side. It it completely went around us. So that kind of blew our minds, and, and so we we drove all the way out uh, this is when we saw the uh, they had this huge trailer for the horses and dogs we saw these guys leaving we were wanting to talk to them uh, just to talk to them but anyway we drove out to the highway and back down around to um, 63 and um, we found this this little this little road and we we followed this little forest service road <laughs> that um, that crossed, that uh, went up towards uh, the mountain and then kind of paralleled the bottom of it. But we drove way back up in on this little road and and picked up the signal again on the uh, on the north side of uh, of the ridge. How far was that travel distance? Do you think from point from point A to point B? I don't know. Maybe maybe a mile, something like that. It had gone pretty far down the mountain. You know, it crossed over the top where we were. Well, it came from the bottom. It seemed like it came from the bottom. I don't know if it went by those dogs and they picked up on it or not, but it went around us and then down the other side. So, you know, I'd say it's maybe close to a mile. I don't know. I'd have to look at it, but pretty good distance. But we picked up the signal again down on the other on the other side, kind of in a look like a food plot area or something. And the whole thing that is so incredible about this, other than what you, what you just told, is that from point A, when the, when the tag was first deployed up to point B to point C to point D. E, F, and so on and so on. I don't even remember what number this, what letter this was in the alphabet. In a linear fashion now, if you track from one point to the next, it's in excess of 30 miles now. It's 35 miles that we have taken contacts on this, this tagged animal since point A. It's actually gone 35 and this huge. All the way through the winter. And all the way through the all, winter. All, yes, <laughs> all the way through the winter, through the deepest part of black bear hibernation time. I mean, these black bears in Oklahoma, they are the progeny of Minnesota and Manitoba black bears. They still carry out the habits of their ancestors. They still go into deep hibernation from early December into mid-March. And, and we already talked about when Tony, when Tony went up with the first airborne team, that was December 4th, the bears are going into hibernation then. Uh, when, in January, when we sent up the next aircraft and we got the ground teams, that's the bears are asleep. Yeah, they're asleep in February. Um, that early time period, that was first three or four months when we started tracking this, was all during deep bear hibernation time. Me meanwhile, meanwhile, this thing's on the move. Yeah, it's it's walking the park, baby. <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. and and it's it's trucking all over that place. You know, up and down. Yes. You know, in Ridges Valley. I mean, so and keep in mind the original tag was over seven feet up. Right. Not only was it seven feet up, but in in the context of when we were getting hits, we were getting wood knocks in the same areas of where where we where we were getting the hits. So, unfortunately, um, you know these tags they have a limited battery life, and around uh, July we started uh, we stopped stopped taking contact, and uh, so we we believe that, that that the tag actually expired that we. It's probably still on the animal. Somewhere 
in that valley, this animal probably still has that tag on. Because, I mean, it, to me, it's reasonable to assume that in 10, 11 months, it never stripped itself of the tag. It's probably still on there. Maybe we, we talked about today, uh, Brian Brown and some others, you know, they, they hypothesized that possibly the tag is on the back of this animal. Maybe the string sort of wrapped around and snapped around the animal and popped it on the back and stuck up in the hair back there. It may be, it, maybe it doesn't even know it's there. And I don't want to get too deep into analysis or anything, but I just don't know. I just don't know what else it could be. White-tailed deer, totally out of their range. Uh, the black bears are asleep. Raccoons, owls, all those, yeah, totally out of their range. White-tailed deer, I already, already said that. Coyotes. Exactly. Um, Consider all the other fauna. Yeah. Uh, Consider lions, everything. Mountain lions have really super short hair. Um, it's within the range of a mountain lion, but again. But how would a mountain lion, would it, Leap off the ground <clears throat> and take a swing at a cockleburr. They can climb trees. Well, they true. They can climb trees, but yeah, but the one the one tree the tag was attached to is pretty small, if I recall. So, a mountain lion would literally have to leap off the ground seven feet in the air to tag itself. Yeah, why? I'm with you, brother. Why would it do it? But but do mountain lions do wood knocks? No. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just saying. And, and you mean by range you mean like white-tailed deer? They don't travel seven oh, miles this way. Eight, no, yeah, right. It's not even close, man. I mean, raccoons, beaver, all the indigenous wildlife of that area. A mountain lion is the only thing that comes remotely close in, in, in the possibility that it could move in, in, in pure range, in the pure range factor. There are a whole host of other reasons why I rule out mountain lions. No, I am convinced that we tagged a wood ape. So joining us now on Apes Among Us, I have Alton Higgins, who is the chairman of the board of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and Daryl Collier, who is our field coordinator. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Good afternoon. And of course, in the studio with me is Brandon. Hi, Brandon. Hey, Alton. Hey, Daryl. So let's just start with your general impressions of what we believe has happened here, that we've tagged what we believe to be a wood ape. How does that make you guys feel after all of the things that have gone into coming up to a point where we can actually have this sort of event take place? Well, I guess there's a sense of pride because a lot of hard work went into it from a lot of really smart people and dedicated people. As usual, we're our own critics, and so we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that all other possible explanations could be ruled out to our satisfaction. So we spend a lot of time doing that between ourselves, and, and in the paper we discuss it too. I would just say that it was really difficult for me to get a grasp of what had actually occurred, even as we continued to track the thing through the winter and the spring and first part of the summer. It was difficult for me to wrap my mind around that, that we had actually conceivably tagged an animal that's not supposed to exist and all the different moving parts of the entire project that all seemed to work together to make this happen. I don't know, it was sort of overwhelming to me if I thought about it too much. <laughs> the, the, for me, my, when we first heard that a tag had gone missing, my initial assumption was that something had gone wrong. It had fallen to the ground, it had been stepped on. Even though all of the things that we did put us in a position to tag an ape, you know, the string traps, knowing what the, the activity pattern was, the movement pattern figuring out how to actually make a tag stick to fern, all that stuff. But even though it actually seems to have happened, it still seemed impossible, <laughs> you know? Um, at first, I, I, I just imagined it was some mistake that something else had happened and it couldn't have been what we thought it was. You should have been there when we were there on, on site, Brian, because 
we we don't talk about this, but we literally wondered, did it just somehow fall on the ground or something? Did it get broken accidentally some weird way? And we spent, I don't know how much time on our hands and knees, you know, near where the tag was seated, searching through every little piece of limb and grass and leaves on the ground, looking for the thing, thinking, well, could it still be here? And we just stepped on it and broke it. That was our big focus at, at the beginning, you know, after the first night and we got up the next day and there was no signal. We thought, well, maybe we stepped on it and broke the thing. Right. I think the thing for me was just even if we had managed to somehow tag a wood ape, it was difficult for me to believe that the tag would remain on the animal for any length of time. Yeah. Just given what we know about great apes. I mean, they're they're very intelligent and I know that if I had something like that stuck to me and I knew about it, and I would go to all ends to try to get the thing off of me. And so I, I remember telling Alton and some others, if we did tag one, it's not going to stay on it. I just don't right. see how that's possible. Right. It's going to remove it as soon as it can, and then it's going to destroy it or whatever. And so I was extremely skeptical when we sent up the first aircraft. My initial assumption was that we would find it in a clump of hair, like we would find it mm-hmm. laying on the ground. That we would, I, I can't, I, I was, I'm with you. I mean, everything I know about apes is grooming behavior and all that kind of stuff i i imagine that we would find it and then that would be great because there would be all this hair stuck to it for me that was that was sort of a best case scenario or most likely scenario i had the feeling of just an overwhelming sense of pride of being part of a group that was Mm. able to put their minds together and actually get something an animal to tag itself which i don't think has ever been done ever before and not only that we very likely tagged a wood ape that's just historic yeah, I guess there are plenty of people out there that probably would tend to throw water on, on what we're claiming here, that uh, they, they, there's no way they could wrap their mind around it at all. I mean, because for, for the individual who thinks this thing does not exist, well, it's impossible that we tagged one, right? So we must have tagged something else. must have been coyote. It must have been a, a mountain lion. It had to be some other known species because there is no such thing as the wood. So let's start breaking that down. How many teams and over what period of time did we deploy and how many times did we make contact with the tag? The tag was deployed in July 2015. The tag actually became active last part of August 2015. So it was out there a few weeks. And then Alton was on site there when the tag actually stuck to something and was taken off. And the other thing I want to point out is it was only out there a few weeks and it got stuck to an animal. That's because we had a really good understanding of what the movement patterns were in that area. And that string trap that it was that it was a part of was one that we had seen triggered, I mean, countless times. And this wasn't the only string trap with the tag that we had set up either. We had no, had them set up no, all over no, the compound. So. Right. Yeah, it wasn't just a matter of just randomly assigning a site for the tags. Um, We put this particular tag in that particular spot because there have been a number of visual encounters at that exact site. We had every reason to believe that putting the tag in a string trap there would, you know, it could result in at least coming into contact with one of these apes. The difficulty for me was just believing that it would adhere to one for any length of time. Personally, I think that the string had been encountered two other times that week because of Scott, the team leader, said that uh, the string had come down. And so they put it up, and then it came down again, they put it up again. And my view is that because it had come down a couple of times, they were thinking that it was just falling on its own somehow. And so the third time, or after the second encounter when the string was found down, I think they wrapped it so much that it became essentially tied. And that's why we found the string broken. It came through with some force. Oh, yeah. So, Daryl, how many how many teams did we have out there then, do you estimate? 
Well, we actually tracked the, the deployed tag from August of 2015 into July of 2016. So it was a 10, 11-month period where we actually tracked that tag. And we had anywhere from a dozen to 15 teams out in the field through that period attempting to reestablish contact with the tag. I would say it was about a 50 to 60% success rate in reestablishing contact. I'd say 40% of the teams failed to have any sort of contact when they sought out the tag. So it wasn't something that happened. It was no guarantee at all that when a team went out, they were going to be able to reestablish contact with this tag. It was very much a game of submarine warfare in the ocean. I mean, it was just, it was hit and miss, man. So not um, every team had contact. Some teams had multiple contacts. How many times mm -hmm. did we put planes up? Was it just the two times? Twice. Yeah, those were both December and January, those two teams. December 10th, and then again on January 1st, we had two birds up there. And how many times did we actually record a contact? Did we record a, a spot on a map where we found the tag? We have 25 tracking points from that 10-month period. Over how big of an area did we actually track it? We employed some range software that helped us to establish. Yeah, so um, maybe walk us through that. So the way this would be used in, in other biology would be that you would take your data points and you would feed them into software and then the software spits out an estimate. Is that correct? Well, there's different kinds of assessments that are used, but yeah, it's essentially correct. You, you plug in your data and then depending on the different models, you get these estimates for, for range. I see. So we did establish some home range calculations based on the software that we used. We used three different methods. It depended on the different method, but the ranges were anywhere from 20 miles up to 70 miles for a home range estimate. Are these square miles you're talking? Yeah. One of the methods came up with about 70 square miles. But, uh, you know, as far as our calculations were concerned in terms of the species, uh, it was a matter of, of uh, not just area that was covered, but it was also the time mm. of year. Mm -hmm. You know, larger animals are going to have a larger home range. And so, you know, that kind of limited the possibilities and the fact that the uh, animal was active throughout the winter. Right. And the area was so huge. That's what's interesting to me. You know, we, we've had this conversation many times while while in X, you know, doing our research, like how talking about range and, and what blew me away is that my assumption was that their range was actually quite small or that they operated in a relatively small <laughs> area for all kinds of reasons. I have a lot of reasons why I thought that. But then when these when we started to get hits like over two mountain ranges away, <laughs> I mean, it was like it just blew me away. The the, the distance, not, I don't even know about the square miles, but like just the, as the crow flies, how far this animal was moving north and south, east and west was really incredible. The tag seven animal caused us to uh, redefine our concept of what area X was. That's right. Yeah, if in fact we tagged a wood ape, and all of us in this discussion believe it's highly possible that we did, even probable. I guess the thing here is that we don't know what type of individual in any sort of hierarchy. We don't know where this individual stands. We don't know if it's a young male. We don't know if it's an adult female. We don't know if it's an alpha male and there's a troop following him. We just don't know those things. So it's really very general information for us, but I think it's arguably it's better than what we had. That's a good point. Different types of apes have different types of social groups and social constructs. We have no idea what the social construct of, of a wood ape would be. It may be the case that some animals are relatively local and, and don't move, but if you're looking at sort of a gorilla model, um, there are rogue males that, that, that range all over the place. And so potentially we tagged one of those, but to your point, we just don't know. One thing we do know is that it didn't migrate. It stayed in the same area. Right. Not only did it stay in the same area, but it returned to the same area. 
it was almost like a salmon in that it went in one big circuitous route. The tag was deployed in August and then all the way around the clock, all the way back into July, it's already almost at the point of origin. The actual placement of the tag, as as I recall from one of the earlier interviews, it was well above the ground. It was above my head height. I'm six feet tall. So how high up off the ground was that tag? Seven and a half on one end and seven on the other end. We spent a lot of time in the group talking about the various candidates of animals that may have tagged themselves with this radio tag. Let's just start walking through the candidates here and why we believe that they're not likely. Let me just say that there is a possibility that the tag actually could have fallen onto the ground and attached to an animal. So even though the thing was deployed at seven feet up, I don't think that that, in my opinion, it doesn't necessarily mean that it could not have been some smaller animal that may have been able to somehow get the tag to attach to it down on the ground or maybe it's hanging I understand the string was dragged out pointing in a certain way, but I'm trying to think. Well, like, it was broken too, though. Yeah, I understand. I'm just trying to come from the perspective of the skeptic because they're going to have all these questions. Well, the tag just fell. I mean, I've, the tag just fell and then and a coyote picked it up or a bobcat picked it up. And that's that's what they tagged, these fools. And they think they've tagged it. <laughs> but it's a so, good point. This seven, and you know, over seven feet off the ground. And this string was not just down. It was pulled at that height and hanging in neighboring branches, moving in a certain direction. And the string itself was broken. So something came through it with force. Correct. In my mind, that would eliminate a bird or a bat. I mean, I don't think they have enough mass or power to break that string. Well, Alton, you're the bird expert. Well, why could this not have been a bird? I know we've already talked about earlier in the show, I think. Mark well, I don't think it was that. a bird because, you know, Mark indicated that uh, this particular adhesive doesn't work particularly well on, mm -hmm. on feathers. But the other thing to consider is that uh, this animal was active at all times of the day, depending on what team was out there. You know, we, we had hits in the daytime and, and at night, and you know, late at night. And animals have uh, periods of activity that, that are pretty typical for them. So, that, I mean, that's another reason to, to rule out bird, because what kind of bird is active at all times of the day? Right. Besides the fact that it, it won't stick to feathers based on our testing. Right. So, you know, it wasn't a bird. Okay, so bird is highly unlikely. Let's, let's talk about bears. I think black bear is one of the lowest possibilities on the entire list. And it's generally the first per, first thing that most people think about. Everyone has to be aware that black bears have a dinning period mm -hmm. in the Washita Mountains. And it's strict. And they don't vary from that. And it's from December to March, sometimes even into April. These black bears den up, they stay in this torpor, this hibernation for several months. There are rare occasions where they may come out for a day or two, depending on how the weather is. If it gets really warm, they may stir around a little bit. And we tracked this thing in December, January, mm -hmm. February, March, and April. And it was on the move. It was highly mobile. It right. was not staying in one position. And in fact, there was a there were a couple of times in February and March where our ground teams were actually January as well, January, February, and March, where our ground teams knew that the thing was moving and it was pretty aggressive in how it moved to try to evade their detection. Because they were tracking um, it with the receiver. They actually yeah. knew the direction mm -hmm. it was and they could see that it was it was moving. But the interesting thing about bear that 
first of all, the, the bears and the Washita's are, are descended from northern Minnesota and Manitoba bears. They were brought down there mm-hmm. and reintroduced to the region. And so it may not be the case that the weather necessitates hibernation, but those bears, they're sleeping all winter long because that's what they've done forever. The other thing that I would imagine is if it was on a bear and the bear went into his den, we would have lost the tag. He would have been holed up somewhere. We wouldn't have received the hits at all. It just would have disappeared until he came out in the spring. Yeah, and the bear denning season in the Washita's, Arkansas and Oklahoma, is highly documented. Right. There are a number of sources out there, periodicals, scholarly articles that very clearly indicate what is involved in the bear denning season in that region. It's very well documented, and that's just something you can't argue with. Right. There's quite a bit of research going on in that region about bears. In fact, we've bumped into bear researchers, and over the course of us doing what we do, we've found them doing what they do. Yeah. Well, that that leads to another idea that disqualifies the the bear hypothesis, and that's uh, home range size. There's been a lot of studies done on tagged bears to determine Mm -hmm. their home range size, and they've learned that in the Washita's, in richer environments, which makes sense in richer environments, your home range is going to be smaller. And what we're talking about in Area X is extremely rich environment. And to think that a bear would have a 70 square mile home range in such a rich environment doesn't make sense and doesn't uh, go along with what the other studies have come up with. If you can't wrap your mind around the hypothesis that we tagged in Abe, then it was not a black bear. You have to accept that, I would think. So I mean, it's not if a you're bear, reasonable. Not a bird. Mm-hmm. The only other thing in the air could be a bat. But again, we go to tracking at all times a day, moving all times a day. And I'm, I mean, I don't top my head what a bat range is, but I doubt it's 70 square miles. Bats, yeah, they can, depends on the species, but they can have huge uh, home mm-hmm. ranges. But again, in the wintertime, bats are hibernating. Mm. What about the possibility of mountain lions actually climbing up the tree where the string is attached to and dragging it down that way? This uh, Tag 7 was located practically in camp. Right. There's a dense little wooded area between the cabin where we were staying and what we called the south cabin. And it was between those two cabins that the string was attached, was uh, deployed across a, a path. We had seen the animals there a number of times. It's just a weird thing. But, but for a mountain lion to come into essentially the middle of camp in the daytime, jump up seven and a half feet, it just it makes no sense at all. Or even climb a tree. I mean, the tree that it was in was clearly visible from the cabin if anyone had been looking it again that it seems like a very very unusual activity for a mountain lion to engage in well let there be no mistake that the home range um for the carrier of the tag does fall within the home range profile for the mountain lion right but i think there are other factors that serve to disqualify the mountain lion as a realistic candidate for one thing it's mostly crepuscular also you have the length of the hair on the mountain lion smooth and short right as Mark McClurkin demonstrated with the testing, tested deer hair. He did not test a mountain lion, but they're very similar. And there was only momentary adhesion right. to any deer hair. So I just have to think that even if a mountain lion did manage to somehow get itself tagged with our tag seven, that it just wouldn't have stayed on the animal for any length of time, given the shortness of the hair. White-tailed deer, it's another candidate, but their home range is typically pretty small. In southeastern Oklahoma, their home range is normally half mile, a mile tops. And again, testing for tag adhesion to white-tailed deer hair failed. It wouldn't have stayed on that long. Right. And we don't have any elk in that particular area that we know of. Now, there is a county in southeastern Oklahoma where there's a managed small elk population on a wildlife management area. But to our knowledge, there are no elk in the study area. We've never found any tracks. We've never found any scats. We've never even heard their calls. They're very vocal. Plus, you also have the length of its hair. Uh, Elk hair is very short. 
and all the years that we had cameras in in the area, which was what like five or six years, we never, saw, we never saw a picture of an elk. Yeah, yeah. So five uh, years so of camera trap work, and also six to seven plus years of being in the field all summer, no all summer long. Nobody has ever seen an elk there. Flying squirrels. Um, I guess it's possible a flying squirrel could have gone through the trap, but the fur on a flying squirrel is short, smooth. Home range for a southern flying squirrel is extremely small. That would disqualify the species. And they're not very big either. And this is I get back to. If you're going to pull that string and break that string, you need to have some mass to you. So, I I mean, the only bird that I can think of that would have been out at the time that we believe the tag triggered would be an owl. I think the the tag was deployed in the afternoon. There was about an hour or so time frame in there. When uh, the on-site team traveled up to the top of the valley and uh, Mark Porter went on a hike to the east. And so the camp was deserted for about an hour or so from like, I don't know, four to five, something like that. That's it. So, and again, that sort of fits behavior that we have intuited in the past. And we've tried to take advantage of this understanding, but we believe that it is maybe not often the case, but it does happen where our camp is visited when we leave it. Right. So that would line up again with Abe. So I, I guess I just want to point out to, to people who are listening to this that we spent a lot of time internally trying to establish what this could be other than a wood ape. Because the last thing we want to do is get ourselves all excited for something when it's not what we maybe hope it is. Cows or horses. Some people say, oh, it's a cow or a horse. I mean, that's not inconceivable. I suppose it's possible that a stray cow or a stray horse. I don't know that a cow would be climbing over several mountains no, uh, over the winter. I, I hear you. I'm just, again, the skeptics, man. This is These are things they're going to say. Right. It's not inconceivable. But the thing is, I mean, cows and horses, as, as you all know, they, they leave a literal buttload of right. sign everywhere they go in abundance. I, I mean, I'm I'm running out of things. A giraffe, <laughs> feral hog. I mean, oh, that's yeah. another possibility. Um, and, you know, we during all our years there, we've seen very little hog sign. It's very strange about that part of Oklahoma because Texas and Oklahoma in general are just overrun. Arkansas too, just overrun with the things. But there's something about that area. The population's just not great there. I'm not sure what it is, but we see hardly any sign there. I think that's probably because the ground is so rocky they can't root for food. We do have a picture of one feral hog, but uh, that was from mid-2000s. And we were all surprised to see that because very rarely had we seen any sign. Could it be, and this is sort of a tangent of what we're talking about, but we have a report of a hog hunter witness an ape take his hog. Uh, Could it be there's no hogs in the valley because as soon as they show up, they get eaten? I don't think that's a silly idea at all. I've had the same question. It may be just a really bad place for a hog to hang out for very long. (laughs) Well, another possibility, Brian, is that we have had some lion sightings in that area. Combination of apes and lions. Yeah. I mean, I found found lions. And canids. And canids, right. We hear hear coyotes quite a bit. Some of our guys have seen bobcats. Some of of our guys have seen mountain lions. We've seen wood apes. So the place is is ripe with predators. (laughs) Coyote, I mean, that's another possibility. But um, Oh, for taking the tag, you think? Yeah, for taking the tag, uh, but the, the size of their estimated home range, it's just not large enough. If you go down the checklist, Coyote's got some things in its favor. It's got longer hair, potentially a wider range, but the string was broken and strung out at the level that it was hung. It wasn't just laying down, so we still don't explain how that tag got off the string. Well, it's hard to imagine a coyote coming into the middle of a human camp and jumping seven and a half feet up in the air <laughs> just the right spot. Just at the right spot. 
And the, th- the other thing that I would point out is how many tags did we have deployed over the course of that summer? Six functional. One of them was uh, a bad one. So we didn't lose any of the rest of them, just this one. Whatever took it, if it's not an ape, then for whatever reason, and many of the tags, in fact, I don't remember where they all were, but a lot of them were even further away from camp. So you would imagine that if some random animal was going to encounter it, it would have been away from the cabins. It wouldn't have been right there in the compound. Yeah, this was the closest one to the cabin. So long story short, this is why we believe it's an ape, because it was an animal that we have perceived to have entered our camp when we weren't there. We absolutely believe, and many of us know for a fact, that these animals are in the area. They're at the right height. Uh, We've seen them right where this tag was deployed. That's why the tag was there. Uh, They are the only candidate animal that is tall enough to have strung it out over the length of, of many, you know, sort of branches nearby. And they obviously have the mass and the strength to break the string. And they have the kind of fur that the tag would stick to. On one of those first ground tracking teams, When we were tracking this animal with the telemetry system that we were using, several of us actually heard wood knocks coming from the direction of getting the signals from the tag. So that leads me to believe that we very likely tagged a wooding in the watch. More supportive evidence. Right. Supportive evidence. So what did we do with all this? We found ourselves in possession with uh, novel, I mean, unique biological data uh, from a tag that was deployed in a way that In all of our research, we can find no examples in the literature of any tags ever being deployed this way. What did we decide to do with that information? We're in a new location, though, so we're kind of having to start over in terms of figuring out where these animals might frequent, how they might approach our new camp. You know, just it's kind of a a reboot. And this summer, it seemed like we're always a step behind the things. You know, we put up string traps to try and get an idea of where they might be. We'd have strings broken strings brought down and we put it back up and it would go down again and we're going dope why didn't we put a transmitter here you know it was just like always a step behind them and we did move some based oh, yeah. on on that activity yeah. if someone may ask us why don't you just put out more tags why don't you put out 50 tags 100 tags what's to stop us from just littering the forest with with these tags well it becomes a management problem then it becomes extremely difficult to manage Difficult enough just to ensure that teams go in there and, and monitor the tags, the seven, eight tags that we have. I can't imagine managing, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 of these right. tags, their locations and which ones are active and batteries. And it just. Uh, Even to know from one team to the next so that you sort of pass on the information of where the tags are, they're not easy to find. So you have to come up with systems to help people, other teams who didn't deploy them know where they are. You have to visually check them every day as well. And every day you have to go out and look to see that the tag is there. I remember when I was in camp this past summer, we would, you know, we have a a receiver in camp and we would turn it up every once in a while to see if any of them had deployed. But you then also have to go look because if uh, an animal gets tagged and takes off, you need to know to be looking for it at that point. Also, if you're extremely active in other activities while you're there, sometimes you just forget about the tags. Yeah, Because unless you're thinking about it, unless you have them written down on the schedule or something, sometimes it's easy just to forget to, to check, particularly if you're out in the field away from camp. tend to forget about the tags from time to time. Can't imagine having 50 to recall. Yeah, it's sort of the same argument that was used against putting ever more cameras out, it, you know, because you have to go service them and know where they are and everything else. Not even to mention the expense of the things. I mean, they're not free. We had to buy new tags after the first year because they have a certain period of time that they work and the batteries go dead and that's it. You can't replace the battery. You have to replace the whole tag. You know, you brought up the battery actually being dead. Like how long was the battery life on the tag? 
The last hit we got was in June. So, you know, it lasted 11 months. All right. So as an organization, we put together a, a paper. We wrote this up. Talk to me about how that came to be. We became convinced that we really had tagged an eight and done it in a novel way. We thought certainly both of those things warranted sharing. We decided we'd put it together in a paper and do some presentations about it. We might accomplish a couple of purposes. Uh, one of them being getting information out there so that others might try the same thing. You know, the species doesn't just live in the Washita Mountains. Uh, they live elsewhere as well. You know, we were hopeful that by putting this kind of materials and methods kind of thing out there, that some other groups might try it. If someone else documents this species, then, you know, we're going to be happy. And the other thing with regard to the novel technique that we employed was we were hoping that by putting it out that we might attract some more uh, scientists to join us and, and help us with our efforts. So I think it was a very exciting, historic thing that we were witness to and we wanted to uh, get the information out there. We have a paper, but eventually, anyway, we will get that information out there. Had that paper gone through any sort of scientific peer review? According to the conventions of science, this animal doesn't exist. So that was a wall that we ran into immediately and that we are asserting, we're claiming that we tagged an animal that is not recognized. And so within the conventions of science, that's an impossibility, right? right. <laughs> you right. you so, can't have tagged something that doesn't exist. Therefore, you tagged a bear, you disturbed it and wouldn't let the thing hibernate and <laughs> you pushed it and pressured it and... The way to refute that is looking at the timeline. The The tag went missing in August, and we didn't establish contact with it until, what was it, January or late December? It was December 10th when we got the next contact by the so first aerial team. It makes no sense that we would have been pushing this bear this entire time. By December, he would have been down. Yeah, that's when they start going into their, right. their denning is early December. And there were weeks when we weren't there looking for it. So <laughs> it isn't like we were out there 24-7 chasing this poor bear around. That's, that's not what was going on. Yeah, but you're applying reason. Yeah, I know. I know. This And this is a, you know, th there's th this is something that I have a, a comment that I've heard from, I would call them the reasonable skeptics. Put your findings in a paper. Publish a paper. Have it peer-reviewed. It is impossible to get someone to peer-review a paper about something they refuse to believe is true. It just doesn't work. You're going to have to have a body on a slab that can be poked and prodded and tested, and that's it. So. so we are going to release this paper probably on our website, and people can then read it and, and take it for what it's worth. I, I do think it's an interesting idea that we would be hopeful that other groups would sort of look at the, the things that led to the success here and try to replicate those findings in their own areas. It seems that what you need is you need to have a, an understanding of the m movement of these animals on a relatively micro level. You can't be putting tags up over the course of tens or twenties of miles. It, it would be helpful to know where they move. But then the methods we use, I mean, this is not rocket science. We we applied an awful lot of creative thinking, but the, the way that we did this, anyone should be able to do this if they know where the apes are and where they move. Yeah, but it's extremely laborious. I don't know that you're, uh, it's going to take a group of people Correct. to pull it off that are well-organized, that work well together to be able to get it done. Even if you put two or three tags out, if you're so fortunate as to have one of them deployed on a wood ape, you're going to be in for the ride of your life. And if you don't have the manpower, if you don't have the wherewithal to be able to, to track it over a period of months, then it's a wasted cause. Yeah, I'm not sure that the uh, the group exists yet that could duplicate what we've done. But that's not to say that, you know, maybe in the future there might not be some folks that get together to try to uh, do the kinds of things that we've been doing for the last nearly 20 years or whatever it's been. 
So is there anything in the data that we, in looking at the hits and when we were writing up the paper, was there any any sort of um, hypothesis or other types of patterns that we saw in the data that, that were interesting to us? Yeah, the distribution did not appear to be random. You know, we, we talked about how it was 70 square miles, but they weren't randomly distributed within that home range. We started in the winter, and the winter observations were all made within a dense pine forest. And then in the spring, we saw that all of the hits came from a a particular river drainage system. And then in the summer, uh, the same thing. All the hits were in a particular habitat type, you know, this mature uh, mixed deciduous forest. So that was extremely interesting to see that it wasn't just randomly scattered throughout this area. It was behaving like you would imagine a real animal would behave. That's my thought, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not just a real animal, but a real animal that's extremely large and wide-ranging, moves around quite a bit, able to negotiate that terrain like nothing. What's the advantage of being in the pines during the the winter months? Why do you think it would be there? Yeah, I don't know. In the winter, of course, the deciduous trees are without foliage, Mm. and the visibility is drastically different than in the summer, spring, fall. Sure. Then again, there's not as much protection from the elements at that time either. So I don't know. Maybe in the uh, the dense, mature pine forest that we're talking about, uh, the uh, the winds are cut down considerably. Mm-hmm. You also have the pine flooring, which is a heavy layer of pine needles, considerable insulation if you're bedding on the ground. Also, you have sustenance from pine trees. The nuts are highly nutritious, very high in protein. Even pine needles offer vitamin C. Mm. These are possibilities. And then also we found that that area of pine forest was very close to a river that flows year round. Oh, sure. Maybe there's some sort of riverine species that this thing refers during the winter months. Just thinking of possibilities here. Mm -hmm. Well, the cover is another aspect. Mm -hmm. If it was over by the area where it was tagged in the wintertime, I mean, there's very little to keep it from being very visible. But in those pine forests, the cover is just great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for sitting down with Brandon and I and talking this through. I I really appreciate it. No problem. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Daryl. Thanks, Alton. Well, Brandon, that was a pretty good talk there we had with with Alton and Daryl, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it was very enlightening. Yeah, that was good stuff. Uh, I hope all of you have enjoyed the show. There's just a few things I wanted to say here at the end that as you listen to everything that's happened and you think about all of the connections to tie it back to what I said at the very, very beginning that made this possible and to echo what Alton said in our interview, I don't know who else could have done this. It requires so much manpower and so much experience and such a deep understanding of the area that you're researching. I guess technically it's possible for someone to deploy string traps and and try to to replicate our work, but it just seems like there's such a barrier to entry. I don't know who else publicly that's operating today, I don't know who else could do that. I don't either. And I think that we are incredibly lucky to have this area where we know that the animal that we're after just lives at. And we know where they move. We know how to track them now. Right. And, and that's, I don't know that any other group anywhere has that ability. You just go down the list. You have to understand where they are. That's half the battle in doing research on, on wood apes is you have to know where they are. Um, secondarily, you have to understand on a micro level what their activity levels are like. Where do they physically walk? And we were able to do that in the area we've been in forever, partly because Alton Higgins started to deploy these string traps and has been doing it forever. So we, we knew where they were and where they like to travel. Then you have to have someone in the group who understands the technology involved who can speak to the provider of the technology, the vendor. 
someone to figure out how to bring all that together in a way that'll deploy on an ape, then you just have to have a massive amount of manpower, which is what we were talking about with Daryl and Alton. Once that tag is out there, it's a lot of effort. We had a hard time putting enough teams in the field if you're going to collect enough data points to be useful. And airplanes help. Yeah. <laughs> it also helps to have a couple of pilots in the group. Right. The, so. air, the NAWAC Air Force came in very handy there. So yeah, it's really remarkable. And I'm so, so happy we were able to tell this story. So next time, there will be a Apes Among Us Episode 3, and I promise it will not be more than a year away. <laughs> Somewhere between two months and eight months, we'll put this next episode out, I promise. I think it'll be sooner than that. <laughs> the, the topic, we're going to be discussing uh, sound and sound recording technology and some really interesting sounds we've collected over the past summer uh, down there in Area X. I'm really excited for this Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Uh, I expect it'll be out in the next couple of months. Just the notes on, on frequency of, of this podcast. Some podcasts have a regular schedule. They put a show out according to that schedule. Obviously, that's not our approach. The NAWAC's thinking about this podcast is that we will put out an episode when we have something really good to say. So that when you see that little indicator in your podcast application saying there's a new Apes Among Us, you will know that we feel that we have something really cool and, and interesting to talk about. And until we do, there won't be another show. So We've got episode three figured out. We've got a pretty good run at episode four. Beyond that, we don't have anything scheduled at this point. We don't even have dates beyond episode three of when we want to have that out. So uh, just to give you guys um, some expectations there that these shows will come out when they're ready. And uh, hopefully you'll enjoy them when they do. And we value quality over quantity. And we hope that you do too. Absolutely. What would be very helpful for us is if you go to Apple Podcasts, if you go to Stitcher or, or Google Play or wherever it is you download podcasts, rate us, review us, subscribe. Those things are very helpful for anyone who, who's podcasting. That would be great if you could do that. And if you are interested in the NAWAC and the work that we do, you can find us at woodape.org. Or if you search on Facebook for North American Wood Ape Conservancy, you can find us there as well. That's right. So, Brandon. Right. Until next time. I'll see you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>